Certain gifts are only appropriate for certain people. For instance, you can buy flowers anytime for your mom, for your sister, for your wife, for your daughter, but you best not be getting flowers for just any, any person, right? I mean, like maybe somebody in the office on Secretary's Day or something like that, and we, we, under, we get that, we understand it. You should never buy a ring except for the woman you intend to marry, the woman you are already married to, or to your daughter. Don't buy a ring. I, I don't care if it's a ring out of the little gumball machine outside of Walmart. We don't, you don't give rings to just anybody, and I, I think we get that, and if you don't get that, I don't think I'm gonna be able to help you today. And a grandma, don't ever give your grandma a handshake Oh my gosh, that woman, it doesn't matter how old she is, will rise up, bend you over her knee, and get and give you swats. Like, grandmas expect nothing less than a hug and a kiss on the cheek, right? Like, there's, we, we get that there are rules for gifts. Uh, there are certain gifts uh, that you give to certain people at certain times for certain reasons. And we all understand that. There were three different gifts that were given to Jesus on that very first Christmas. And each one of those specific gifts were given to him for a specific reason. Frankincense was given to Jesus to highlight the, 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 uh, the fact that he is the high priest. He's the mediator between God uh, and, and man. So Jesus is the one who represents the Father to mankind. And Jesus is also the one who represents mankind to the Father. Last week, we talked about myrrh and how myrrh actually identified Jesus as the sacrifice for the atonement of mankind's sins. And today, we're looking at gold. Now, everybody wants gold. I would love gold. I'd, I have a few rings or necklaces or whatever, but gold in ancient times wasn't a gift that people gave to other people. It wasn't common. It was, it was rare. Uh, the only people who actually received Gifts of gold in ancient times were royalty or idols, things that people worship. Now, if you were going to go visit a king, you had better find a way to get yourself some gold because you were supposed to give some type of a gift of gold when you met a king in person. You can see this in the story of the Queen of Sheba and the story of King Solomon when she comes to meet Solomon, after hearing about how wise he is, and then says, uh, as, as great as I have heard that you were, your greatness was even greater than that. And she left him with, I was like thousands of pounds of, of gold that she had given him. Um, uh, in Egypt, the tombs of Pharaoh were filled with gold. In Mesopotamia, King Sargon of Akkad and Cyrus the Great, uh, filled their temples with gold and were given gold as tribute by dignitaries from other provinces that they had conquered. The Mycenaean ruler Agamemnon refused to accept tribute in any other fashion than gold. Uh, and in, even in ancient India, gold was given as tribute to their rulers and deities. So when the Magi show up, the wise men show up to visit Jesus, and they bring out of their treasures gold and gave that as a gift. Them being princes themselves of Persia, bringing gold when they visited Jesus, what do you think that they were saying about him? 
Let's look at it. It's in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chest and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This whole idea of presenting Jesus with gold was identifying him as king of kings and lord of lords. And their response to that was to bring him something that was considered in their day to be the most valuable, which was gold. They bowed down and then they worshiped him as king of kings, as lord, right? Like this was not only pictured in the gifts that they gave, but also in the posture that they took when they saw Jesus for the first time. But not everybody responds to Jesus the same way. We're gonna see today that there's three different ways to respond to Jesus as king. And we see the first one in the actual Christmas story. So we're going to back it up just a little bit to the verses that preceded this verse that says that the wise men bring to Jesus their gifts. We're gonna go back to uh, the very first verse in this chapter. So Matthew chapter two, verse one says this, Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. Now, King Herod was the under king to Caesar of all of Judea. Uh, he had a Jewish wife and he stylized himself as the king of the Jews. In fact, it was a moniker that he had given himself. He is the king of the Jews. He uh, saw himself uh, as the savior, as the rescuer, as the benevolent provider for Jewish people. And he wanted to be worshiped uh, in that fashion by the Jewish people. He was terribly insecure. In fact, we know from history that he even murdered his own sons when he thought they aspired to take his kingship away from him. So when he finds out that the wise men are here to worship the king of the Jews and it's not him, he has a similar response. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go back to the story. Uh, verse two, excuse me, verse one. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from Eastern lands arrived in Ju Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? Because we, star, we saw his star as it rose and we've come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem, because when the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Verse four, so he called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law, these were Jewish leaders, and he asked, where's the Messiah supposed to be born? According to, he wanted to know, like what does the Bible say about where the Messiah is supposed to be born? And they answered him, verse five, in Bethlehem in Judah, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote, and you, O Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will come out from you who will be the shepherd for my people Israel. Verse seven, then Herod called for a private meeting with just the wise men, without their bodyguards and their entourage, and their servants, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Like, when did this star first appear? Because he's thinking that this newborn king of the Jews was born sometime between when you first saw the star and now. And we're gonna find out why that comes into play in just a minute. Then he says in verse eight, then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for this child, this newborn king of the Jews. 
And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too, which obviously was bunk. He, we know what he intended to do because of what he did to his own boys when he thought they wanted to be the king of the Jews. And so we find the first of our three responses to Jesus as king, and that's this. Some people will oppose Jesus as king. King Herod felt threatened by Jesus, as I've already established. And I want to show you what happens in just a minute. So in Matthew chapter 2, verse 12, this is after the wise men present their gifts to Jesus. Here's what happens. Um, verse 12, when it was time to leave, they, the wise men, returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to King Herod. Verse 13, after the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said, and stay there until I tell you to return because King Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Verse 14, that night Joseph left for Egypt with the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there in Egypt until Herod's death. Thus fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son, the Messiah, out of Egypt. Verse 16, Herod was furious when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, and he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and under, based on the wise men's report of when the star first appeared. This is known in history as the slaughter of the innocents. In fact, if you were to Google just the phrase, the slaughter of the innocents, it's going to bring up this time in Roman history when King Herod slaughtered all of the boys in and around Bethlehem two years and under because of his opposition to Jesus as king. And truthfully, once presented or confronted with the idea that Jesus, if he's going to have any part of our life, insists on being the center of our life, we also can feel threatened. When God does something that a person doesn't like, or when God doesn't give you what you thought God should have given you, it's tempting to see God as a, as a threat. I can't tell you the number of times I've met somebody who is an atheist or who is even anti-God or anti-Christian, and when you get them to share their story, it comes from Jesus not doing something that they thought God should do, or God allowing something to happen in their life that they thought God should have stopped. Because if you see God as a threat to your kingdom, you will oppose him as your king. The religious leaders of Jesus' day felt the same way. Uh, Jesus, uh, this is um, the last week in Jesus' life, it was now two days before Passover, it says in Mark chapter 14, and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread and the leading priests and teachers of religious law were still looking for an opportunity to capture Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the Passover celebration, they agreed, or the people may riot. Because they saw Jesus as a threat. His popularity with the people represented a threat to their control of the people so they weren't willing to consider Jesus as their king. They were going to actively oppose him, and that has happened in our lives also. 
But that brings me to the second response to Jesus as king, and that, and that is that sometimes we just simply dismiss Jesus as king. Jesus was born at Bethlehem. His parents fled to Egypt. And then uh, after two years when Herod died, they went back home to where Mary and Joseph had a home, and that was in Nazareth. And that's where Jesus was raised. Um, and Nazareth, Nazareth was a small town, but it wasn't so small that they didn't have their own synagogue. And Jesus was raised in this synagogue. Jesus starts his ministry and becomes wildly popular and then comes back to his hometown. As a guest in his hometown, on Sabbath day, he's invited by the local rabbi to stand up and read from the prophet Isaiah, to read from the scroll of Isaiah, and he does. And the passage of scripture that he reads is a prophecy about who the Messiah would be. And Jesus says, when he gets done reading, he says, today this verse, this passage of scripture is fulfilled in front of your very eyes. And they say, wait a minute, is that is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph the carpenter? And so they push back on him, and then he responds to them that he is the Messiah, and here's their response. Here's how they dismiss Jesus. In Luke chapter 4, verse 28, it says, When they heard this, the people in the synagogue, this is in Jesus' hometown, were furious. Jumping up, they mobbed him and forced him to the edge of the hill on which the town was built. They intended to push him over the cliff, cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. They, we reject you as king. So the, you can oppose him as king. You can dismiss him as king. And this isn't the first or the last time that Jesus was dismissed as king. In Luke chapter 18, uh, there's a, a rich guy who's also a ruler of the people. Um, he's in the high council. And he comes to Jesus in Luke chapter 18, and he says, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? So this guy is genuinely seeking to reconnect to God. But he wants a connection with God on his terms. So Jesus says to him, you, you, you know what the law says, right? And of course he does. He's a ruler of the Jewish people under King Herod. So he quotes part of the Torah. And then Jesus hears his answer and says this in Luke chapter 18, verse 22. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all of your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then you can come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad because he was very rich. This guy was seriously interested in God, but if God wanted access or control over the thing that he valued most in his life, then he didn't know if he wanted God in his life at all. He'd rather not have him. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, then Jesus said, verse 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you want to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and follow me. Because if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will find it. So Jesus says what it looks like to come into a relationship with the Father through me, 
is that you've got to get to the end of your life with you in the middle. You've got to lay down your selfish ways. Like your life can't be lived for you anymore. And I don't know if there's anything more un-American than that. In our culture, it's about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But whose happiness? It's my happiness, my life, my liberty. I get my rights. Like we have the Bill of Rights, right? Like it's, we are individualistic as a culture. And as a citizen of this country, I, I love all the freedoms that we have. What I'm saying is that our independent mindset is the thing that often must be sacrificed if we're going to make Jesus Lord of our lives. That's not just an American thing. This is a struggle for all the people everywhere because everybody, it would seem to indicate in the scripture, is born with this huge grain of selfishness in our DNA. And that is the number one thing, according to Jesus, that must be dealt with if we're going to be reconciled to God through faith in Jesus. And it is the most difficult thing for me to get to the place where I would say that my life isn't going to be lived for me, for my glory any longer. But Jesus makes this promise. He says, if you're willing to lay down your life for me in that path, you will find that that's where you find the life that you were actually created for. And this then brings up the control issues that I have that I feel like I should have the final say on everything to do with my life so that I can make sure that I'm happy. I think everybody feels that way. And I don't know very many people who would say that they live truly fulfilled, meaningful lives of satisfaction. Right? But Jesus says that the way that you will find your greatest satisfaction is when you get to the place where you're willing to empty yourself of you and lay all of yourself down. Pick up your cross. Like, sacrifice your life for the kingdom of God and God's glory. And he said, and that's where you will find your life but we have a difficult time. So I'd rather God on my terms. And if God won't be in my life on my terms, then I'd rather just dismiss God altogether or just keep him to an hour and 10 minutes on a Sunday or a Saturday. I just, I want to manage God. But if God wants to manage me, I don't know if that's the God that I want. And that brings me to our third response to Jesus as king. And that is that some will worship Jesus as king. So some will oppose Jesus as king. Some will dismiss Jesus as king. And thankfully, others will worship Jesus as king. And the wise men are the very first ones to ever model what this looks like. And bringing Jesus gold. Traveling, what? Some people say that since it took them they saw the star the star two years ago that like is that when they started preparing or is that how long it took them to walk around the fertile crescent to avoid the desert to get to we don't exactly know but it was a huge sacrifice on their part and then they bowed down and worship 
Jesus is king. Matthew, Matthew the tax collector did this exact same thing when Jesus said, follow me. And he left his money table out in the open and just got up and walked away to follow Jesus. Peter and Andrew, James and John did the same thing when Jesus said, lay down your nets and follow me. And then they did. The Samaritan woman modeled this when she went back into the city, the village of Sychar, and told everybody everything Jesus had done for her. Uh, Zacchaeus modeled this when he gets up at the end of his lunch with Jesus and he says, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have ever robbed anybody of something I should not have taken, I will pay them back four times. Uh, Lydia, the merchant of purple, and Tabitha, the seamstress, also modeled this. And Paul said that everybody at some point is going to bow down and worship Jesus as king. He said this in Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, when he said, Therefore God elevated him, Jesus, to the place of highest honor because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, and given him a name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So Paul says everybody will eventually acknowledge Jesus as king. Jesus says, but not everybody that acknowledges me as king will enter the kingdom of heaven. All right, that's a little unnerving. Why? Because only those who actually did the will of my Father in heaven will enter, is what Jesus said. John chapter 6, verse 40, Jesus said this, for it is my Father's will. So he said, only those who uh, do the Father's will will enter into heaven. So what is the Father's will? John chapter 6, verse 40, for it is my Father's will that all who see his Son and believe in him should have eternal life. And I will raise those people up on the last day. These are the people who worship Jesus as Lord. Now, everybody will at some point worship. But the question is, when will you acknowledge Jesus as King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Everybody will on Judgment Day. But Jesus says that those who on Judgment Day enter into the kingdom of God, enter into eternity with God, and those who've been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus are those who on this side did the will of the Father. What's the will of the Father? That we would see Jesus as the reconciliation of mankind to God and then believe in him. Jesus put it this way in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 to 25. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross, and actually follow me. Maybe you are angry at God because of things that other people did to you in your past or because you feel that God didn't do what you thought he should have done. And because of that, you see God as a threat to your world order. And therefore, you see God as an opponent like Herod. Or maybe you don't like the idea that God should have the final say in what you do with your sexuality, your money, your time, or your habits. And God has been calling you to step up, to lay your life down as a living sacrifice, to 
reorder your finances around God's kingdom priorities, where we give to God first and everything else comes second, or your time, and that you as a follower of Jesus have been called to serve God through the body of Christ, your local church, or to live in community with other believers, but you don't want to reprioritize your calendar around that. So you'd rather a God you can manage, but if God wants to manage you, he's too easily dismissed at this time in our life. And others of us see God as the giver of all things good in our lives, the one who loves us unconditionally, forgives us repeatedly, and has beautiful plans for the rest of our lives. And you are the ones that will find in Jesus your connection to God. You are the ones that he adopts into his family, fills with his presence, and gets to see him act on your behalf. And the truth is, I don't get to control how you see Jesus as king or how you respond to him as king because I can't change your heart. Only God can do that. But when God does that, you get the opportunity to respond appropriately. And that's what I'm gonna give you the opportunity to do. So if you would, bow your head right now and we'll pray and talk to him. God, I love you with all of my heart and I'm thankful, Jesus, for everything that you've done on our behalf. Thank you for showing up into the human story in the least of these type circumstances without giving yourself any advantages so that you can identify with others who have no advantages. You suffered so that you can identify with those who suffered. You were betrayed, you were abandoned, you were mocked and you were left out. You suffered through the loss of loved ones and the betrayal of friends so that you could identify with all of us who've suffered in any way. You were tempted to sin yet without sin, the scripture says, so that you could be our high priest. Then you offered yourself as a living sacrifice to atone for our sins, which is the myrrh. And our only appropriate response, God, to that is to acknowledge you as the sovereign king, the Lord of our lives, and the center of our own little universes. I pray, God, that we would humble ourselves and call on you for forgiveness and for salvation. And maybe that's your prayer. Jesus, forgive me for sinning against you, against others, and against my own conscience. Thank you for atoning for my sins by offering your life as a sacrifice in place of me. I would never ask you to do that, but I respect you enough not to ignore that. And I'm asking you to forgive and save me also. And if that's your prayer, then your next prayer is, God, show me any area of my life that is not fully submitted to you and let me lay that down to you as an act of worship. Let, let this be the gold that I lay at your feet. God, I bow down, metaphorically speaking, in your presence, and I say everything that I have, everything that I do, my sexuality, my identity, my career, my money, my time, my habits, my plans, my goals, everything in my life, God, I want to submit to you. Show me where any of these things fall out of line with what you want for me, and I will bring them back in line with what you're asking. This is our prayer. We ask this in Jesus' name, and we all say it together, amen.